for the past 10 days, I've been reading about you and I came across such a wonderful journey. And I truly want to say before starting that after reading your journey, I have so much respect, not only for your work ethic and your perseverance, but also for setting a great example by keeping the true essence of journalism alive and being an aspiring student. I'm grateful to have you here with us. Happy to be happy to talk to you. Sure, sir. And I was so happy to read that your grandson, whom you like to call Bento, because you are not allowed to share his real name on internet. And for good reasons, you know, one cannot trust these Zuckerbergs out there. You know, okay. I was so happy to hear that he turned out to be a prodigy as an artist. And what I found even more fascinating was that you would drive for a six-hour drive to him when he was suffering with a rare cancer disease, which truly shows your affection towards your family. And all I want to know is that now in this phase of your career, are you able to sort of spend time with him, play with him in the garden, show him those Charlie Chaplin black and white films, which I heard you wanted to introduce him to because right. all I can imagine is that a person with such wonderful experiences like you I mean you would never run out of bedtime stories <laughs> well to tell you the truth when he was two and three years old I used to tell him all my stories he uh, he loved them he loved to hear these stories so yeah I you know he knows about all my time in Africa and the Peace Corps and all that stuff so you know he he has been uh, a very uh interested you know subject for, to, to listen to all these things and today i mean he's starting school starting first grade tomorrow or today even i'm not sure it's today or tomorrow and um, wonderful the only problem is is that he, he's got an immune system that's compromised and my daughter is very worried you know of exposing him to other kids if they're not wearing masks and in california they said you have to wear masks in school but not necessarily outside in the playground. So, so all these little things, you know, it's never ending, always a worry. I also came to know, sorry to interrupt you. I know you're an amazing storyteller, but I even came to know that this relationship with your grandson is so inspiring for you as well, that you even wrote an article about it on AARP magazine, which I enjoyed right. reading. And I came across some of his drawings and I would like to show it to you. Everyone can see it on the screen out there. And all I want to know is, is that you on the right side? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah so were you, were you like Mona Lisa just sitting in front of him? Oh, no, no. He found some picture of me where I have my hand like this and uh, he did that. Now, it doesn't look exactly like me, but for a five-year-old when he drew it it's pretty amazing i thought but <laughs> yeah i was almost use it you know i i do these books of short stories that lately and this was the picture i used in this, this one and then i used a different picture. i had a picture like this in this book so this one and then my new book i just which i i just approved today i was going to use that as a drawing but my wife and my uh, uh my proofreader and all said you got to use your own picture. He says, you know, it's not, you know, I, I feel like I was a divided. I wanted to use it, but I ended up not using it. <laughs> yeah. And it's so wonderful to hear that he was at the age of five. He drew that because the only thing I can imagine doing at the age of five was how to make diapers look bad. And believe me, <laughs> I was really good at it. So it's really great to share all these memories which you have with him. 
And I even heard that you are about to write the third book of short stories. The first one, I believe, was called The Narcissism. Second one, which you right. just showed. And the third yeah. one, what would be the title? I just posted it five minutes ago on Facebook. I posted the cover and the and the uh, the the back cover. It's called Stuck. And it's based on a story that says it's about a guy up one day and he's got you know, some cactus uh, thorns in his in his hand. And, you know, if you go near a cactus, if you work in the garden, you can get those little thorns and they're really annoying. Sometimes you need to take a scotch tape, take it off or pull it out with a tweezer. So he pulls out all these sure. little pieces and then he goes to sleep and in, in bed he starts getting uncomfortable and he sees that he's got more thorns in his body. And he does, says, what's going on? He says to his wife and his wife says, I, he says, I, I, got, I got these thorns. And, so they go to a doctor, the day, and they take blood, and they say, for some reason, you have some cactus plant DNA in your blood. And he tries to remove it, and then he gets more, and to a point where he's standing, you know, he can't sit down, he has to stand up, and they decide to let, let the public know about this, because maybe there's a doctor in India, or a doctor in, in, in uh, Saigon, or there's a doctor around somewhere around the world. And the, the story gets out that they, they call, start calling him Cactus Man. And um, so that's the, the, the genesis of that story. I wasn't going to use that as my title story. I, I had a thing called The Colorist, which is another story that I wrote that I liked. For the sure, title. sir. And it's really wonderful to hear that how you sort of fictionalize your stories. And I even heard somewhere that you said, I like to fictionalize even while in, I write interviews with famous personalities. You like to add a touch of fiction. And I personally want to know, what do you mean by fictionalizing an interview and how can one do it? No, no, you're, you're misreading this. I won't fictionalize an interview that's, you know, because that's, you, 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 you get in trouble doing that. What I have in mind is, a, a, as a fiction writer, as a novelist, I have in mind a structure that, you know, where you tell a story, let's say, from beginning to end. And that's how I see an interview. I see it, I, I, I see it, uh, I, I see what I do with, as a, with a novelist's eye rather than with a journalistic eye. That's, that's what I'm really saying. I do not fictionalize what, you know, anything that is happening between me and Pacino or me and De Niro or me. That's all real. That's that's not. OK, actually, no. I was reading this book recently. It's titled The New New Journalism, and it has interviews yeah, okay. about, yeah, behind the process of various Pulitzer Prize finalists or winning authors. And most of them are nonfiction authors. And I've found one of them say that uh, I always try to fictionalize my stories so that they take the reader to a different place. And I truly want to know, what do they mean by that? Because I truly find this topic really fascinating. I don't think it can be interpreted that you're making something up between, you know, in, a, in an actual story. Uh, it's, it doesn't, that doesn't make sense to me because, you know, journalism is basically nonfiction. Um, so with the new, yeah. new journal. What I think, sir, what I think, sir, they might mean by that is that while the reader is reading the book, it might take them to a whole different place, make them hooked yeah. on the content. Well, it's like, yeah, but, you know, you look at the, 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 the books that were the leading books at that time, the Hunter Thompson books, the uh, Tom Wolfe books. When you read uh, the Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, for example, it reads like a novel. I mean, he's got it's crazy. All these characters coming in and out and what have you. 
um, he was there. He he's accurately reporting what was going on, but his writing is 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 a, on a higher level than just a journalist. I mean, he he had a really great eye, and that's I think what you see. Hunter Thompson with Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. With him, I mean, he's making up a lot of these crazy stories because he's got monsters coming out. But they but he's hallucinating. He's taking drugs, and and then he's going to Las Vegas, and he sees all these crazy things like a monster at the table. Well, you have to realize he's writing under the influence of LSD or whatever drug he has taken and so that becomes part of his story and uh, okay. you know but you know yeah it's just the to me fiction is kind of a higher level of writing in a way you know the great writers that we remember are fiction writers um you know in, in all countries um, and you but, have also and you have also written wonderful fiction novels and i even read that you initially wanted to be a fiction writer but really? those of you those of you fiction geeks out there who want to check them out all the links would be in the description of this episodes and on the screen one can see his two novels catch a falling star as well as begin again finnegan yeah i truly want to know that uh, first of all if during any part of this conversation you want to address me my name is parth chandana and i'm from live currently from new delhi india and you can call me by I, my first name or even I, last name because i know you've been to india i have been to india I, i india is one of the most interesting countries in existence and by the way while we're talking i see that you're putting up a uh, picture of an african sculpture that i have in my house but why are you showing that <laughs> yeah I, i'm actually showing it i'll tell you the reason because yeah. i know that you've had after completing your college you went as a member of peace corps to ghana and right. there you taught journalism and after that you travel 8 months to the asian side in countries like india japan thailand etc and i think you, in africa you discovered this uh, the, you had this urge to collect these african sculptures and right. i want wanted to know that in your recent book which you said about your journey in, as a peace corps member in africa would we be able to see uh, read more about what you completed after that which you traveled for 8 months in the asian side you can read about the asian my stuff in india in my memoir it's called you show me yours um yeah. i i write about that there i write about my time in ghana and then when i leave ghana i go to east africa uh i and and mombasa lamu the island of lamu and then cross over uh, uh to at that time it was bombay not mumbai yeah. and then went to eklingji udaipur a, a bunch of different little towns uh, i took trains and just buses and i would just go places yes. to see places in india and i'm and then, actually uh, surprised by the kind of fearlessness which you showed even at those uh, young age because i remember you must you must not be that old at that time no i was very young i was 23 uh, 24 something like that wow yeah. your parents allowed that <laughs> my parents didn't want me to go to ghana you know it was i was i was i was, I was uh, 20 years old i guess when i when i got into the peace corps and my parent and i when i said i'm going to go to ghana my father said because there was a war going on the vietnam war True. was happening and um and he just felt you have to do your duty if you're called you serve and i said dad if i believed in it you were in world war 2 you believed in that war i don't believe in this war and why am i going to let some politician like richard nixon or, yeah. or lyndon johnson tell d- determine my life for me i go i go to to the army and they and i get shot or i get wounded 
What for? And in Afghanistan today, what's going on just today as we talk is the most horrible situation. 20 years we were there and America was there. And in the end, nothing came out of it. Absolutely nothing. Just a waste of life and kill. And, and so I, I'm very much anti-war. I, I understand a good war. I understand a, when a Hitler is involved or something, you know, you, you have to deal with it. And I totally get your perspective on that. And talking about the recent Afghanistan crisis, I mean, it was disheartening to see that there were footage, footages that people were falling in midair. Yeah. And it was quite frightening to see that. Yeah. But taking our eyes off that, I want to know that when I read writers like Fyodor Dostoevsky or watch movies like The Godfather or even watch characters like The Joker played by Heath Ledger, I see such great sort of uh, stories which have so many layers in them and the characters which themselves have so many layers in them. And I'm curious to know that how can one write such stories which not only have deep layers but have characters who themselves have deep layers and sometimes we have to read or watch the content again and again to understand it. So how can one just exhaust his or her curiosity, imagination to come up with such deep stories? Well, look, the, 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 you know, you're mentioning Dostoevsky. You know, if you look at James Joyce, if you look at Proust, if you look at Balzac, you know, I'm reading right now Rohan Mystery. Mystery is the, um, uh, I know he wrote A Fine Balance, but I'm reading uh, Family Family Matters or something, I think it's called. I, I'm involved in an Indian story. And I'm saying, okay, sometimes the writing's good. Sometimes, you know, he's using too many Indian terms that I don't understand or whatever. I have to, you know, understand, right. get where he's going. I find that I put the book away. I get involved in my own work. And two, three weeks later, I pick it up. I know exactly where I am. That's good. That's good writing, you know. You know, it's 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 an impossible question to answer. How did you know this is the way the mind works? Dostoevsky's mind works that way. When you read uh, *Crime and Punishment*, it, it's a great, great novel. When you read Tolstoy, yeah, you know, I, you read I finished reading that know, about a week ago, and this kind of psychological torment that he's able to depict after a person commits a crime. I mean, that's extraordinary. And all I'm curious about is that how are these writers and these directors able to create such an emotional impact? inside of us, that you feel that tingle inside of us while we are reading or watching their work. You know, Parth, I'll tell you, I mean, the truth is, I, I, I'm i not a short story writer. I never, you know, I always saw myself, I wanted to be a novelist. I've written a couple of novels. I, I became well known for my journalism because of these interviews and I, you know, they paid me well. I was able to buy a house, put my kids through school. So I, I did that. But I, so for some reason, right before the pandemic and right through it, I, I had an idea for a story. It came from a dream. And it was a weird dream about a spider that was this big that was yeah. in a bathroom. And I, you know, anyway, that, that I said, I started to write that story. Once I started that, I, know, I had another dream, another story. And I just started writing these things and they kept coming. I, I can't explain that because it's like at this, at my age, to become a, a, a writer of short stories that I really think are the best things I've ever written, I, 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 it's hard for me to believe. I didn't think I was going to write this last book, but I, can't, I wrote 31 new stories in, in six months. It's impossible. Only Joyce Carol Oates does something like that. <laughs> well, I, the answer to your question is like, it, it's, it's a mystery. It's a mystery why our minds work the way they do. Um, and all I know is I'm not fighting it. You know, I still have a novel I want to write that I started a long time ago, but 
uh, you know, as long as I, if I come up with another story idea, like I just saw the Olympics. Did you watch any of the Olympics? Yeah. And I also wanted to know, were you able to watch Olympics with your grandchildren? Are they interested? Oh, no. I can't, my grandchildren are still six hours away, you know, and the other, the other oh. one's in Bainbridge Island, which is uh, 16 hours away. So I can't really uh, see with them. And, and uh, uh, it's only when I go up there, when you say I drive up there, I go whenever they need me. When he was in hospital, I went up every two, every six weeks for two years. But, yeah. but um, no, in the Olympics, there was a dressage horse, the, a hor the horses, you know, and there was a right. woman from a woman in Germany whose horse did not want to jump. Didn't want to jump over. <laughs> I remember that. So mad. And she was smacking it. And her coach was screaming. I found this out later because I read about this. He was screaming, kick her, kick her. You know, but he was to force the horse to jump. And the horse never jumped. So she was in tears. It was horrible. I said, there's a story there. I've written about a lot of animals. I said, I haven't written about a horse. I want to write about that horse, right? I don't know what I'm going to say, but I know that there's a story. And so that's, it'll be my next story for my next book. I don't know what it'll happen. But I did read today that some some star, some movie star or something has said she wants to buy that horse. Name your price. You know, <laughs> you probably want to kill that horse, right? So <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and if we go back to some of the Indian legends, you you know, because I truly respect the kind of cultural heritage from where I came from in India, and we had people like this Maharana, Maharana Pratap, and talking about horses, you said that how they use force to try to convince the horse to do something. And I remember him saying that Maharana Pratap, he was one of the greatest warriors when the Mughals were taking over the whole Indian subcontinent. There was this small city of Mewar, and he was defending it alone. And Mughals wanted that because it was the only closest route to the sea route at the time. So he, he had this horse called Chetak. It was a blue colored Afghani horse. And he said, the horse, his foot was cut one time during in between a battle. And even at that time, he was able to jump 40 feet, a gap of 40 feet, the horse could jump. And people asked that, how was it possible? Then they realized that the Maharana Pratap, he treated his horse much better than he treated his own son. He would always take care of him. And same was with his elephant. His elephant got captured by the Mughals. And he used to treat him so well that the elephant refused to aid. He refused to give up to the Mughal rule to fight for them. And he died out of hunger. And it truly shows that animals are also you know, capable of that emotion. Oh, I mean, in, the, in my this new book of stories, I have a story about a parrot, story about a, par a parrot. Uh, I have one about a pangolin, you know, who's being blamed for the pandemic and he's defending himself. He says, it's not me. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, so, so yeah, it's, I mean, I've, I've written about hyenas. I've written, you know, I mean, I, for some reason I like to get into the head of, of animals and uh, I, I didn't realize that until I started writing them, but you know, it's been fun. <laughs> yeah. And even reading about you, you talked about how you were able to, you know, despite of all this journey of being a freelancer, because you wanted to be your own boss, you were still able to give such a wonderful life to your children. And more than that, what I truly like about you is that how were you able to be involved with your daughters in their day to day activities? One of them, I believe, is a doctor. And the second one, I remember Maya Grobel, you used to help her while she was recording the show called How Hollywood Works. And you used to assist. 
I saw it on YouTube. <laughs> There are clips. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so no, wonderful to hear how you used to assist her and show her the right way although she did all the work. And I even no, saw her movie which she did one more right. shot and it how right. beautifully they illustrated the journey of destigmatizing the idea of infertility and various reproductive technologies and the way they were able to show their journey it was both emotional as well as a little bit fun to watch with the kind of upbeat editing yeah. it was done yeah. yeah well you know the the thing is when my daughter was in the ninth grade she was basically going to high school at Beverly Hills High School and she called me up from one day from the and said dad she says they have a they have a television uh, thing here where you can be on TV and do a show and they have a thing called how hollywood works but they haven't put it on in a few years because no what they don't have somebody to host it So I can host it. She says that they, you know. Uh, I said that's great, honey. What do you want to do? She says, "Can you can you get me Al Pacino?" This is the first thing she wanted. <laughs> so I laughed. I said, "Well, before we talk to Al, let's see what you, we can do." So I got very excited that she wanted to do it. So then I sort of said, "Okay, let's let's see. Maybe we'll do Elliot Gould first because he was a family friend. Let's do Lily Tomlin. You know, let's stop. Let's look at uh, directors that we knew and you know people sure. from the business. So the people." all the people i asked said yes except al he's the only one who didn't want to do it i you know think yeah. and i but, know that you do a really wonderful impression of al pacino i just enjoy listening to that <laughs> well the thing is is that the thing about that that show was she did it for 4 years she interviewed so many people i was there for every one and what i did is i helped her learn how to do, ask questions like you're you're doing a very good job right now because what i said to her and what you're doing is you don't let somebody go on and on and on when you have a certain time you have to interrupt even if it's politely and let and keep the thing moving if you ask me one question i can answer it for half an hour i could and you don't want that you know but if you sure. don't stop me i might keep talking and that's what i had to teach her because you know and she she got it you know so she was able to do anthony kiedis or whoever it was and it was like wonderful to see Yeah and even during those uh, interviews i heard the guest say yeah that's a good question and i can yeah. see that she got the chops from her own dad and yeah. oh, i want to know that what do you think i've known that you have interviewed various famous personalities as well as their children and you realize that how many of them were not so good parents and i truly read this book the same book the new new journalism and i heard one of the writers say that the main thing i'm able to write such in depth non fiction while i'm interviewing or such in depth stories is because no one really understood me as a child not even my own parents and i do not want anyone even the person sitting in front of me if he she is not a famous person i don't even want them to feel that way and that inspires him and i truly want to know what inspires your side to become a good parent and make sure that your child children are not only doing well in their profession but are also mentally healthy throughout their whole journey was it more about your interviewing the personalities or is it more about your past although i've heard that your father was a true gentleman well the point no i i don't think my interviewing had anything to do with my raising a child it it may have affected in a certain way i've seen the way marlon brando's son called you know hated Marlon you know he one of one of the sons you know Christian but, but you know he had a lot of pride and he called me up and he used to, he wanted to write a book about it I didn't want to do it I didn't want to write a negative book about Marlon Brando um but yeah so but no 
parenting is something that, that I, I think it's just innate. You know, you have a child and, it, it, you know, and all of a sudden you, you learn what love is. You know, you watch somebody grow. Um, you want to do the best for them. But to tell you the truth, it's never ending. Uh, my kids are now, one is 40 and one is 37. And they still have anxieties. They have their own problems. Uh, I try to help them. They don't often want to listen to me. You know, they think they know everything. <laughs> they don't think I know anything anymore. And I have to say, wait till your kids are a little older, you'll see. But that's what my mother used to say to me. Wait till you, wait till you have kids, you know. It's never any easy, Parath. I mean, this is this is what I learned as a parent. No matter what you did early on, they'll remember the things that were upsetting when you didn't let them go uh, to some party over New Year's Eve when they were 15 or 16. They remember that. I said, True. I'm taking care of you. You know, I'm being a parent. They're being a child. That's just the way things are. So um, I'd like to say yeah. I was a good parent, but um, I would say my I, was I actually want to know this because I read this really great thing about your past, how you began as your interview's journey in uh, Jericho, Long Island at the age of 10, I believe, when you would go up to your house and neighborhood, which was built during the Revolutionary War and ignited everyone's curiosity. You would use your press privilege and sort of get a nice tour of the house. And that began your journey. And after that, you won a national level uh, essay writing competition about American history, which was sponsored by Newsday, which led you to meet even Robert Kennedy. But you couldn't because he was in Berlin at no. the time. No, no. Yeah. I, I met Robert Kennedy. I, okay. I, was supposed to meet, I was supposed to meet President Kennedy, Jack Kennedy. And okay. he, was, <laughs> he was in Berlin at the time. So so they said, okay, we'll go to the attorney general's office and meet, meet Bobby Kennedy. And that was a great moment. You know, I mean, he gave us uh, 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 some pins, PT-109, a tie clip and a pin. Uh, he asked us questions. Uh, and then he asked us if we had any questions. And it was it was very, I mean, a memorable experience. For I was 16 years old. It was pretty, pretty amazing. Have that yeah. Happen. What was the time when you thought like I can really write well, you know, I'm really good at putting my articulating my thoughts into actual words because I see that even while I'm reading your book, I just sometimes get hooked on them. And they are one of those books which I don't want to finish fast. I want to read them slowly <laughs> and gradually and, you know, take the most fun out, which is not quite the case sometimes while reading Dostoevsky because they are so <laughs> thick and there's yeah. barely a single image in it. And these small, tiny texts just want to sometimes rush them off. Well, thank you. I, I, I have no answer for that other than to say that I sort of write the way I talk in a way, you know, so I mean, it's 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 an easier way of reading. I, I'm not a diff it's not a difficult read my writing very rarely. Um, but I appreciate, you know, my favorite authors are the most difficult, you know, the James Joyce is my favorite author. And it's like, yeah, not so easy to read. I've been reading Marcel Proust lately. I mean, you know, there are certain people that, you know, I read and I appreciate. I, I know this, that you are known for asking difficult questions because you prepare so well that you straight away, you like to go for the unexpected. And what I want to know is that how do you know that I can push this guest on a particular question up to a certain limit, especially if the answer or the experience they are sharing is improvised? Because I saw that uh, there were short clips of your interview with Dolly Parton, which was animated beautifully on Blank on yeah. Blank channel. And yeah. the way she said that she would try to be quite open and you just started with the icebreaker by telling her what was the first memory of you sitting on a 
flush toilet seat and that led to a whole different beautiful story what are the signs you look for in the body language of a person that okay this is how much i can push them on this particular question well that's no no you you got it just exactly right i mean it's the body language it's the eye contact when you're you know i learned early on for instance i was interviewing warren Beatty, and warren Beatty. uh uh we had to stop talking for because he had something else going on. So I said, let's go. We'll continue on the telephone. I said, okay, great. So I call him on the phone. He called me because he wouldn't give me his phone number, but he'll, he called and he did. And I said, Warren, I, I read that uh, you had some tax problems, you know, that you owed the IRS $1.7 million. How did that get started? Right. Out? And he got, I think he said that I'll talk to you later. I never reached I'll, out. I'll right again. Yeah, I got to go, Larry. I'll talk to you later. And that was the end of it. I learned my lesson. You never ask money questions in the, until you're finished with the interview, basically. You know, I always thought it would have been sex questions. For instance, with Barbara Streisand, it took me months and months to get to her. When I finally get to her, she wanted me to sign a thing saying, uh, a release saying that she owns the interview, she can do whatever she wants, and I wouldn't sign it. So yeah. we had an impasse. When she finally, the lawyers called, the manager called, and she finally agreed to talk to me without me signing we sit down by her fireplace on the floor, on the carpet. We start talking, and she starts bringing up sex. You know, she just mentions it. I had prepared all these questions. No, no sex questions. I didn't think I would get to that for months or weeks with her. So I thought I did. And so, but I thought, why is she doing this? In my mind, I'm thinking, well, she's, and I thought that's her way of committing psychologically, because if she would have said, I don't want to talk to you anymore after that day, I would have had material that I could have used, you know, right away. So I thought that was interesting, but you never know. You have to be, when you go into an interview, you don't know what to expect. With Barbara Walters, when I had to interview her, she had a publicist there. With the same thing with Charles Charlton Heston. When they have somebody in the room, it's no longer going to be very intimate. I say to the publicist, please leave. I don't want to see you in my eyesight. Do you mind going into another room? You can listen. I don't want to see you. I have my own way of what I want to deal with somebody one-on-one. If I get my way, and I usually do because the person is there and he, you know, he looks like an idiot if he says, no, no, I need somebody. You know? but, <laughs> right. um, but, but you know, it's like you have to feel it out. With Warren Beatty, I was dressed in an African costume, so I looked different. People normally come to him in a sweater or a jacket or normal clothing. I look like a crazy guy, but I had a feeling that I had to show myself to be different. And when he opened the door, I don't know why I did it, but I pointed my finger and I just said, Warren, like this, like I, you know, I was a kid. I didn't know. <laughs> and he, he let me in and we got along famously, you know, so you just don't know. It's really a matter of... Yeah, I actually want to know this, sir, that do you think by knowing your guest interests, like in case of Marlon Brando, he had an obsession with the Indians, do you think appealing to their interests, to the guest interests, would that help them, you know, break that wall? No, no, you have to do that. With Marlon Brando, he only wanted to talk about Indians. I needed to talk to him about other things or there'd be no interview. But he only wanted Indians. So I prepared 400, 400 questions about Indians and the Indian affairs. I did so much research. When I first started with him on the island, I went to his island. For three days, we didn't talk at all uh, on, on with a tape recorder. We talked every day, but he wouldn't let me use the tape recorder. We finally got okay. to the tape recorder. I asked him, I started without the Indians. The whole six hours we talked just about Indians. I wanted, and he, the next day, 
six more hours on the Indians. But in wow. between, in between, I'd say, you know, when you did on the water from the movie, you did this, and he says, yeah, but you know, that's really, and he starts talking. <laughs> then he says, oh, you got me, you got me. He goes. But that was what that interview was. You have to be overly prepared. So by the time you out Indian, the person who wants to talk about Indians, mm. then you can go to other subjects. But, you know, you have to be that the whole trick of interviewing is preparation. You have to be fully prepared to talk to somebody. If you're not, you're nervous because you don't know where it's going to go. And if you, if the subject goes off on a different ta tangent, you don't know how to follow that because you didn't study that. You didn't know it. If you know all that stuff, you feel comfortable. And then and they will feel comfortable because they feel that they know they, they they feel you respect them because you've studied about them. And and then in the end, a, a good interview can happen. Yes, sir. And I was actually talking about preparation. I think we can confidently say that even though Marlon Brando was an amazing and true icon, but still, he was not that good with preparing his own lines for the script as he had cue cards all over the place. And I truly want to know, when I see his work, it doesn't feel as if he's looking and reading from somewhere. The way he's able to convey the emotion in silence. And I remember you talk about in various occasions that while you were sitting in front of the beach he told you that the best conversations happen in silence and then you yeah. were silent you want to know how is an actor or person as a writer you can use this silence to convey these emotions i was so tempted if i was not in on an island where i needed to go on an airplane to get out of there if i was just in his house i think i'm i, I was very tempted to sit in silence for a half an hour with him stand up and say Thank you, Mr. Brando, and leave. That would have been a, an amazing story, to, but I didn't do that. Thank goodness I didn't do that. But that's what about, because it happened to a writer when he went to interview William Faulkner, the writer, the American writer, and he was so nervous. And when, when he opened the door, Faulkner let him in, but he didn't say hello. He didn't say come in. He just opened the door. The guy comes in. They sat down in chairs. Faulkner lights his pipe, starts to smoke doesn't say anything. He hasn't said one word yet. The guy didn't, was waiting for him to break the ice. He didn't say anything. So this guy, the, the writer, didn't say anything. And after 20 minutes, he stood up and said, thank you. And he walked out. But he wrote about it. And it's a great article. You know, it's to me, it's one of those funny articles you read about going to see someone and, you know, this is what happened. Yeah. But I, and that, that's actually, sir, I truly want to know this, that how is he able to, you know, convey such great emotions without even using actual words? Because when I watch them, one can see that authority as Vito Corleone without even speaking anything. Well, that's why that's why it was Marlon Brando. Like Brando said, anybody can act. Anybody can do it. He always put acting down. But the truth is that uh, a great actor can convey a lot with just their eyes, with their expressions, with the way they curl a lip. I mean, it's just... It's just the way it is. You know, I mean, uh, this is the reason they get paid millions of dollars and you and I don't, you know, I mean, it's a, you I know, mean, you, you have you have written a whole book about him. I mean, you must know that. How was he able to convey that? Was there a way he listened? Because I know listening is one of the key aspects, even as an interviewer. How was he able to listen the line so well that he didn't even need words to convey emotion? The, the 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 thing about Marlon to me was that he did he listened very well. He for, for when he and I were together for the for the first three days, as I said, he didn't let me tape anything. So what happened was he kept I I didn't want to ask him questions. I didn't want to lose 
the spontaneity of a, an initial answer. So instead, I told him my stories. He he listened to everything. He knew what my childhood was like. He did, but he was preparing in his head something. What was he doing? He was going to be playing George Lincoln Rockwell to, on Roots, and Alex Haley the, uh, was interviewed this guy Rockwell, who was a uh, white supremacist. Um, and and so Brando was studying me as a Playboy interviewer because he was going to play a part of a guy being interviewed by a Playboy interviewer. So he was oh. very clever and he was studying. He studied people. That's what he did. So he could pick up on, on, on certain characteristics. You know, John Huston told me when, when Brando, uh, in Reflections of a Golden Eye, the movie, he plays a like a, a soldier. And, uh, and at one point, he's at standing in front of a blackboard talking to other sol soldiers. And uh, he's this, Houston said, the first take Marlon did was terrific. He didn't need to do another. But Marlon said, no, nah, we can do one more. So then he did another. But he did it with a southern accent. Then he did a third. And John kept letting him say, oh, we'll do it again. Let's do it again. He said, I didn't need to do it again. But he did it differently every time. And I wanted to see how many times he could do it that were good. He says, and they were all good. It was amazing. He said, I never saw an actor do that before. Elizabeth Taylor was in that movie. She did over and over again the same exact way. He said that was the way she was. She rehearsed a, a part. Whatever she was going to do, she did. With Marlon, he did it differently each time. That's just two different actors. But who's the greater actor? It was it was Brando. Okay, so I believe what I get out of this is that he was not only good at listening, but he knew how to try out different choices and use the one that has the most appeal. And I truly no. think, yeah, yes, and I truly think you, one. yeah. He didn't use the one with the most appeal. He let John Huston, the director, pick the one he wanted, but he did oh. it good in each time he did it. So, you know, it was like it was that was the way he did it. Pacino, he liked to do, he rehearse. Pacino could spend days rehearsing, you know, if the director would let him. And then when it's finally shot, you know, he knows exactly where he's going with it and doing with it. Yes, sir. And I truly believe you would have an answer to that because I know Al Pacino had a truly amazing sort of relationship with not only you, but also your family. And I've heard you share various instances of it. And I truly want to know that for all the time that he spent with him, I'm really amazed by the way he shows aggression without making it look overacting or a bit corny. The way he's able to show all that aggression is so yeah. much wonderful to watch. Like, how is he able to do that? Because I know his past must be having a part to play with it. Well, uh, I think we are all of our characters. I learned that with, with Al, especially because I got to know him so well. By the way, he does overact at times. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Some of this <laughs> thing is over the top. The thing I found with Al was that he became the character that he was about to play in real life as well, that he just absorbed that character. And like when he was making um, The Devil's Advocate, I hadn't read the script. I knew he was making it, but I hadn't read it. And he was, since I saw him all the time and talked to him all the time, that he, became, he got very nasty to me. And he was like, he would always say sarcastic things. Or he did something to get, you know, like to, to boil my blood, basically. Yeah. I, didn't get it. I didn't understand why he was acting, behaving that way until I saw the movie. And then I said, that's, he was the devil. He was playing the devil's advocate. I yes, was, sir. I, 
And sorry for interrupting. I just want to know that is he able to be that because I know you also acted with him in in a movie which was based on a play, and I even watched the whole hour. And I yeah, and I saw you in between that you used to interrupt him with a single line. And I truly want to know was he playing this character because I've heard Jim Carrey do the same thing. Was he able to play this character off screen and be this vulnerable with all the people, or was it with people who he can trust like you? No, I think it was people he could trust. I, I mean, he wouldn't be around a lot of other people in any way. You know, if he, he, mm. when he'd be absorbed in something. That's Look, when, when we did watch Salome, he asked me to be in this movie. The, two, the day before the movie was going to start, that he was going to shoot, he says, I want you in my movie. That's why I called. I wrote a book called I Want yeah. You in. I said, what are you talking about? He says, yeah. I said, I just want you to. I said, Al, this is a movie about. You're playing Herod, you know, King Herod, you know, Salome, back in the time of Christ. What are you talking about? He says, I just want you to interrupt me whenever I'm doing something. Just come up and bother me. And, then, uh, and I said, yeah. I'm, how am I going to do this? But I said, okay, I did it. Now, in the three-hour version, I'm in the movie a lot, and we're talking a lot. <laughs> but when it was finally cut down, I'm in the movie just – you see me in the background all the time. Wood yeah, and – and, and the best part is that the director even didn't know that you would be well, there. And th- that was truly fascinating. How was he able to do that on the spot? And I know that 45 minutes are up. And I truly want to know, do we have s- some time for questions? Sure. sure. Great. Yeah, might, so I actually, yeah. actually wanted to know, I need to get this right, this line right. I read on your website that Gail Godwin, who is herself a wonderful writer, she said this. The more you respect and focus on the singular and strange, the more you become aware of the universal and the infinite. Let us then muse on the singular and strange and reach for the infinite. And I truly want to know what that doesn't mean and how does it apply to writing? Huh. Well, that's that's a that's probably a question that takes a lot more time to answer. But um, I think... I think when you try to go to the infinite, when you try, when, when you look at writing, you focus on certain things. Now, yeah, I focus on some of the strange things, like in Africa and the what. But there is a universal uh, understanding of the strange as well. Of the, uh, you know, it, it it just depends on how you you view you know life. I have a, you know, I'm an optimist and a pessimist. You know, I, I, I have both of that in me. And I, you know, uh, my stories are often very dark, my short stories and, 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 and the novel too. But it, it comes out in the end. You know, you're okay. You know, people, you know, not, they're not suffering too much, although some people die. But, um, <laughs> but I think that, 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 you know, if you in India can read a story I write in the United States sitting in my house in Los Angeles and relate to it and feel for it and can, and, and can, get get the understand the emotion that i was coming from then i've achieved something um and my books are read in india i mean uh, you know i see that uh, you know every once in a while I, I i see some of my work is there so i uh, you know it's it's that we we strive to uh reach an audience and we strive to understand the truth truth is very yeah. important I'm, I'm writing a book now called turquoise it's based on a, a memoir i wrote 50 years ago when I was in Ghana, it's the, it's my, I, I didn't take a camera to, to the Peace Corps in Ghana for three years. I lived there. I never took a picture because I wanted to force myself at that time. I knew I wanted to be a writer. I said, if I don't have a camera, anything I want to remember, I'm going to have to write about. And that's what I did. 
I put this book aside. I totally forgot I wrote it. I've just discovered it and I've been rewriting it. And it's so interesting because it's so much, so detailed, much more detailed than I ex- remember. And all these things that keep coming back to me. So it's a wonderful thing to have, to have done. But I call the book Turquoise. Let me just explain this and then jump in. Uh, is because <laughs> it was a, there was a sculptor named Vincent Kofi. I wrote about him for African Arts Magazine. And I said to him, and he, he had studied in England. He was a very good sculptor. I said, what is the truth in art? And he said, truth is like the color turquoise. It's under artificial light, it's a, a greenish color. Under normal light, it's more of a bluish color. And he says, so I always thought that it's that's a very true statement about tr- truth in art, that it's not the same. Truth, your truth, and in, in interviewing is not the same as my truth in interviewing. My truth in Ghana was about a white guy who's 22 years old. What do I know about living in a black society and 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 the, what they had to go through? But I was writing a book about that, right? About my experiences there. So I figured this is my truth, my turquoise, but it's not the same as your turquoise if you would if you're a no- local person. So um, true. Yeah, and I actually can I just jump in. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, actually, you explain it so well that I just want to listen and listen. But I think there are, uh, because I truly believe if you were my maths professor, you know, I would have done a PhD in that damn subject because you're Mm -hmm. so good at that. And you have, you are even teaching at UCLA, the art of interviewing and various other subjects. And I even read on Twitter from one of your students, I believe her name was Marjorie Hernandez, and she got an opportunity to interview the creator of the Playboy magazine with you at at his mansion. And I want to know, you must have seen various writers, you know, come up in the beginning stages and develop their own style. What do you think an aspiring writer should be aware of while writing so that they can facilitate this process of developing their own style? I think you just have to read a lot and write a lot. You know, I mean, to me, I, I, I advocate everybody and I make them do it when I teach uh, of keeping a journal. And I always say at the end of the, I said, I want to see your journal at the end of the course. I don't want to read your journal because that's personal, but I want to look at the pages You and you can hold it and turn the pages, but I want to see how many pages you've written. If it's in your computer, show it to me, show me the date that you wrote it. You know what I mean? So I know you're really doing it. That's all I wanted to do is to make people, because writing it's like playing a piano. It's like anything else. It's an instrument. You know, the more you write, the more you see, uh, you, you, you learn how to phrase better. You know, when you interview, one of the things I always talk about interviewing, a big thing, is to keep your questions short. Because when, you're, when you ask somebody, and if, you, if it's somebody famous, if you're talking to Al Pacino, you don't have to say, when you were in The Godfather and you played Don Corleone. Right. Remember, you, he was in The Godfather. He played it. You can just say, as Don Corleone, do you remember? Bup, 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 bup. You know, take out those five words, those ten words, because those all add up to your time, and it it, it bores them. You know what I mean? You don't want to bore your subject. So you want to ask them pertinent questions and to-the-point questions, and don't go off the subject too much. 
unless you're really getting along. With me, I always go off the subject, but that's because I've had the time. If it was a Playboy interview, they allowed me weeks and months, and so I had a lot of time. When you're on a deadline, you're on a deadline, 45 minutes, you say, okay, I can talk to you for four or five hours. That's not, you know, but if, when you want to do a certain amount of time, you have to get in a certain number of questions. You want to have to get a certain area. So you're, you're working. Your mind is always working when you're doing these things. And so that's the same with, with writing. I, it just practice the, the craft. Read the great writers. See what writers interest you. Do you like the short, crisp writing of Ernest Hemingway, or do you like those long paragraphs of Henry James or of, of uh, William Faulkner? You know, who are the people that really interest you? See if you can understand what they're doing. And I know, like Elmore Leonard told me, he would copy. He would take a, a, a paragraph from Ernest Hemingway. He says, how did he get this emotion out of me? I, I read this thing. He would write it. He would handwrite the exact words, copy and then sort of break down it. Try to understand, yeah, as he wrote it. That, you know that I've never done that, but I, that's an interesting method. You know, yes, and I even read about Shakespeare that he began writing by copying the other famous writers and just trying to add a little bit touch of him. Although one could read that he has copied it from some other writer, and now he's the greatest in the undoubtedly greatest in the literary world. And I really like this point about keeping your question short. And I truly encourage for anyone out there to do check out Larry Sir's book, The Art of the Interview, as it has all the kind of experiences that you all have, that you have accumulated from decades of experience. And I want to know that I read somewhere that one, one of the producers stole your play called An Evening with Capote. And even your wife, who is a great artist in her own right, she used to make these sculptures, which an art gallery wanted to auction. And just yeah. when you sent it, they never contacted you again. But still, the best part is that your smile has never disappeared, despite of what the circumstances. So I want yeah. to know, what would you advise to any creative artist out there to how to protect their work? Because I've even read, you know, there's this uh, book called Behold a Pale Horse written by William Cooper, who was one of the well-known radio announcer. And he predicted the 9-11 attacks months before it happened. Not like a clairvoyant, but more based on facts and figures. And he was shot and assassinated a few months after the 9-11. And he, a producer wanted to buy rights to his biography, his whole life for one dollar. Well... Uh, I don't know about the, the dollar price. I mean, I, but, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's very difficult. I mean, you know, it was a very uh, eye-opening experience with me when, with, with my Capote play. I mean, I wrote the book and then after the book came out, uh, I thought, gee, it would make a good play. So I wrote a play of one evening, an evening with Capote. And then I got Bud Court, who was the actor from uh, Harold and Maude and all. And Bud Court, had the Capote's voice down perfectly. So he made a record of it. As a matter of fact, there was a company that wanted to put it out. This yes. is the, the, the okay. play, right? But what happened was uh, Capote's estate didn't want to uh, try to stop it because there was a play coming out. Well, that was it was my play. Um, but it's too long to go into. But uh, the thing is, it was stolen by Jay Press and Allen and our husband, uh, Lou Allen, who uh, was the producer. And they, you know, they met with me. We, we thought it was going to happen. The, the deal wasn't so, made. Sir, what do you think you would advise to a young aspiring artist to make sure that they protect their work and what you learned from these experiences? Well, 
I mean, first of all, uh, you know, you always should copyright your work. That's number one. So you have this, so you own it. Um, it's very difficult to protect work today because so much is taken from so many places. My book, uh, my interview with Barbara Streisand, I, I read a book years later by James Spader called about Streisand. And I'm reading, look, I'm looking at the, I actually, I, I was reading it in a, a supermarket, you know, it was one of those papers and I'm just looking at it and I see, oh, I, she said that to me. Oh, she said that to me. Oh, and I'm <laughs> totally I copied. Buy, I buy the book. I see that she, every, all the quotes of her are from my interview. It's okay. You're allowed to take to take seven hundred words or something like that. You know when you, but he took all three thousand or five thousand or ten. No, it was thirty thousand words. He stole all those words from me, and he didn't give me credit until the end of the book where he mentions my name or something. He doesn't say anything that it's that, it, that this is where it's from. I called my publisher and I said, "Hey, go after him. We should sue this guy." And they got in touch with the uh, the uh, publisher. And the publisher said, "Oh, we didn't know. We're sorry." And that was good enough for Playboy. They took the apology. I said, "I, uh, you should take the money. <laughs> you should find out what, you know, what, how we got paid." I was very angry about that, but there's nothing I could do about it. Now, what happens is, since that happened, if I see, if I happen to see like the National Enquirer, and I don't read it, but once in a while, you're in the, if you're in the supermarket and you open it up, and I see it's, it, they're quoting something that's in something I had written. I send them a check. I send them a bill. I just say. For using my material, $500. For using it without my permission, $500. You owe me $1,000. And they pay it. Even though wow. you know, they I, don't. I think you got that from Al Pacino's character, Michael Corelloni. You just sound like a mafia. <laughs> just yeah. fill the bag with all the crispy yeah. dollar no, bills. Look, the, the question is a tough question. Uh, yeah. you know, what do you do when somebody steals your material? I mean, it's it's a horrible feeling to happen. But, you know, it's, it's like, hey... Uh, you know, I've I've been I've been in investments like a Bernie Madoff investment. I had an investment that I lost a lot of money, a lot of money. Um, but I, I said to myself, "What is? Am I going to lose sleep over this?" Which I did for a while, all, all my life. Am I going to be angry all my life? I said, "No, I'm going to. Uh, it'll give me an ulcer." It happened. It's part of life's experience, negative or positive. That's life experience. Use it. Write about it. You know, get it out in Seriously. an artistic way. And I know that you have all these tapes of your interviews and I truly believe that they are a living treasure because when we hear yeah. voices like, I love Dolly Parton narrate anything. She has this beautiful accent. I just love how she narrates everything. So what are you planning to do with it? You tell me, uh, maybe there's an, uh, in, in India, there's a uh, university that would like to get this. I'm in the mo I'm right now, just as of yesterday, actually, someone came to my house about it. Uh, of putting together a catalog uh, to to sell my archives to the University of Texas, to the University of Chicago, to NYU, to UCLA, a, a, a Library of Congress, whatever it would be. It's it's an amazing trove of material, 3,000 hours worth of material, all these famous people with the most in-depth interviews. Plus, I have the transcripts, which is a big deal because you know, for scholars, all there, it's all indexed. I have a journal that I have kept since 1976 in Streisand that is now over two million words long. It's that's it's enormous, uh, and it's all about the behind the scenes of everything I've ever done. So some institution will 
get interested in this. And it doesn't have to be in America, although that's going to be attempted to sell America, but anywhere in the world that would be interested in this archive, <laughs> I would be interested in hearing what they have to say. So who knows? It'll end up somewhere. <laughs> sure. And I'll totally, you know, look forward to listening to them and making sure because I'm on my way to college. It's just the COVID crisis. I just finished my high school and I'm about uh, to amazing. yeah, <laughs> go into media and communication. And it was so so great you know talking to you and all i have is this last question that i read that you went through a difficult phase when your i believe your skull cracked after you fell from a ladder and i know that in your profession there are so many circumstances like you share people just steal your material and when you go through this maelstrom of emotion just talk to me about what was the role of your wife and your whole family in keeping your head straight and making sure that you are on the right way and you are relaxed despite of what people like to, you know, take away or throw at you. Well, you know, first of all, I'm very lucky. My wife is a Japanese artist. She has always had a, a, a philosophy of uh, things will work out, basically. Things, you know, just don't fret about these things. And um, she was always like my inspiration because I would always be much more ang anxious about things, you know, because I had the responsibility of put, making a living, you know, and sh she would do her art and some of it would go into galleries. Sometimes she'd sell some stuff. Sometimes she wouldn't. But she was always able to get by because she believed in herself. And I think it rubbed off on me, you know, so I, I, she, I was never under any pressure to she didn't care about meeting any of the celebrities I was I was talking to. I was very lucky in that regard. I've Although Al Pacino did trigger an emotion at first, yeah. She would, yeah. When Al Pacino came to the house, she loved Al Pacino as an actor, you know, and on stage. And so, I mean, she saw him in the movies, and it was he was very handsome and whatever. So when he came to the house and he, he came up, we, we went into my study, and just Al and I were just talking about things. And she came in with a holding some tea, you know, like, you know, it just her head was bowed. She brought the tea and then she walked out and I, he looked at her and he goes, what was that? He goes, you know, because it was like, you know, it wasn't like, you know, she, she wasn't gushing over him. She wasn't. And then she said, I said, well, what do you think of Al? She says, well, he's shorter than I thought he would be. <laughs> <'Cause> he's <not laughs> but, 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 you know, he was. It was wonderful. She didn't. She didn't get overly excited by people, you know. And and meeting, you know, people like Nicole Kidman and Angelina Jolie and and uh, uh, Cameron Diaz and Governor Jesse Ventura and you know they they came to my house. Brando. They all came here one time or another. And she was very cool. She, you know, she'd say hello and 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 then serve food if she, if we wanted something. But then she would just leave us alone. And and it was always her food. Like Pavarotti came to my house, and he stayed because she he loved her dumplings and he wanted. You know, they were they were there were people. Thousands of people were waiting for him to sign records. Uh, that Tower Record. He was yeah. up in my house eating. That was amazing. But you know, so I've been lucky, and my kids also. You know, for some reason, they didn't. They weren't starstruck. They, you know, they were. You know, they they would just grew up. This was it. Pacino was a house friend. He, they didn't even know he was an actor. Um, and yeah, when, and, and sir, that's so great to know that how each of you family members were so involved in each other's life. Take it from you assisting your daughter to how Hollywood works to your wife, you know, who used to make the delicious food and yeah. how you yourself used to take interest in your wife's art that you I married a woman who's in the other corner of the world. 
And yeah. it's such a wonderful thing to share. And all I want to ask you is that what do you would like to share with viewers? What are you working on? Because I know you have so many stories still left inside of you that they always come out in some form or another. Well, what I, I mean, I'm working on, I'm, I've been trying to convince certain producers to uh, do a, a, a movie based on my conversations with Brando book. I have another movie script that I wrote based on the, my both my novels, Catch a Fallen Star and Beginning and Finnegan. Also, another uh, movie I wrote based on the novella I wrote, which is a sh which is in my short story book. It's in the um, the Narcissist book. Um, it, it, you know this one, and and that one is um, uh, the Black Eyes of Akba uh, or the Black Eyes of Allah, uh, either way. And um, so I, I I've written those scripts. I'm writing that Turquoise book about my life in, Ga in Ghana, and I've just finished the short story books. I wrote a book called You Talking to Me, which is uh, another book. I don't know if you've read that or not, but that's the sequel to The Art of the Interview. And that's, yes, uh, that's 120 lessons I learned from people uh, that, you know, talking to them. So that's an interesting book. So what I want from out of this podcast that I do and talk to people is I just want people to go look at my books. You can re usually, uh, if you they get them on Amazon, you can look at it. says, look inside. You can press on that and look at the first 10% of the book for free. You don't have to buy it. If you like it, buy the book. Review the book. Say what you think. Because right now, it, you know, it's so hard for writers to make a living. If, and if I can't make a living out of just my writing anymore, you know, just from these books I publish. The journalism, yeah, you can. But these things, it's difficult. But... I've been lucky. I've been lucky that I've been able to save enough that I don't have to starve of doing what I'm doing. So I'm I'm in a good stage in my life. But yes, um, sir. But, and yeah. I truly believe that the kind of work which you have created would live across ages. It would not be a thing that we would read right now or something before. It would go on ages because it's so topical and everyone wants to know about these personalities and take it from your novels, which have their own unique stories. And I'll personally check out your other books. But the main problem is that to get them delivered to India, it takes around like a whole damn month just to get them shipped. And you know, it's truly a dream to learn from people like you. And just having you as our guest was itself fulfilling. And I truly enjoyed being a part of this. Hope you had a great time as well. I think it was very good. And then let me know uh, if, if how I can... If it airs, I mean, if you send me a link, I'll put it on my Facebook page so I can get you some more viewers. I'm sure my kids would love to see this, you know. So whatever, whatever you want to do with me, um, do it, and and uh, hopefully, I, uh, people will enjoy it. Sure, sir. Thank you for being our guest, and I'll totally send it to you. It would also be available on all social media sites like Instagram, Twitter, and phone in form of one or two minutes clip so that everyone can gain value from it and not have to watch it for the whole hour. And <laughs> it was great having you as our guest. Have a nice well, day. And let me just give compliments to you, Parath. I've done a lot of these these uh, podcasts. You did a very, very good job. If you're you're still in high school, that's amazing. You know, you're you're you're, you're on your way. You have a, a, a sense of understanding about how to do an interview. You've done your research and you you moved me along as best you could. And I think you did a very good job. So all compliments to you. Yes, sir. And I truly want to know, what do you think I could have improved on? Because I love, you know, learning from legends like you. 
Yeah, it's it's some kind of just phrasing. That's all. Sometimes you'll say uh, to tell you the truth. That's you know, or I'll you know, the, so like that's like Jay Leno always said. Let me ask you a question. Let me ask you this. Sometimes over and over again. So it, sometimes it's just a re, a rephrasing of a question. You can eliminate that. But in all honesty, I think you did a very good job, and I don't think. Uh, I, I really can't be critical. I mean, and I would be, you know, if, if I had something to sell you, I would, I, I usually do, but, um, no, you did a, you did a very good job and you were, you were, you surprised with certain questions that you knew about infinity. You know, I'm trying to remember <laughs> where I, I did write it somewhere, but I don't remember where, where you found it or you found certain things online that were just like, you know, funny to see, you know, so good for you. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> I mean, I look up to people like you, Howard Stern, as truly my idols and people I look up to and learn from your work and truly means a lot coming from you. And I hope we get a chance to meet in future in person once we get through this pandemic. And yeah. all I want to say is, sir, keep doing what you do. I'm sure even you know, years from now, people would always look forward to your books and always enjoy your work. Well, thank you so much. I may not be here years from now, but I hope the books live. <laughs> oh, sir, you look healthy as ever. Don't say that. <laughs> okay. All right. I hope you get to All right. Take care now. Okay. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay. How do I get out of here? Leave this? You can just click the leave button. Yeah. Okay. All right. So with this, we end up our episode eight of Bravuras. We had the wonderful writer, Lawrence Grobel, and you can truly check out his website and read along his travel adventures. And there's so much out there, not just for writers, interviews, but for any creative person or anyone who has certain admiration for personalities like Al Pacino, Marlon Brando, all the stars from, you know, the last generation and the present one. So please do check it out. All the links would be in description. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, feel free to leave us a review. It would truly help us in improving what we do and have a great life.